Welcome back to D to Scale, a podcast for marketers about building businesses and scaling ideas. I am your host, Toby Daniels. On this week's episode, we have Matthew Sweezy, who is the principal of marketing insights at Salesforce and is also the author of the forthcoming book, Context Marketing Revolution. During the conversation, we discuss the trajectory of his career and what led him to his current role at Salesforce, why he describes the modern media environment today as infinite, why he feels optimistic about the role of AI in helping to deliver a better consumer experience, and why being human first and experience driven in marketing means everything to him. Matthew is one of those rare people who can simultaneously operate at a macro level in terms of his ideas and thinking, while also able to distill those ideas in such a way that they feel extremely relevant to the day-to-day of modern marketing. Please do take the opportunity to check out Context Marketing Revolution, his next book, which is available for purchase or download in March 2020. Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoy the conversation. I am very excited to be joined by Matthew Sweezy. Matt, thanks for joining us today. So excited to be here, man. Thanks for having me. Right. So you and I have fairly recently become acquainted. We're sort of we're, we're new professional friends. However, after spending a little bit of time going down the rabbit hole that is your resume, I am pretty confident that we're going to have a ton to talk about today. So what I'm going to do is give our listeners like the short potted history, and then I'd like for you to sort of open the kimono, as it were, and, and allow us to get a little bit of a deeper sort of perspective on you, and in particular, your views and some of your thoughts and ideas in regards to the future of marketing. Sound good? Perfect. Great. So, your day job. You are a principal of marketing insights at Salesforce. You are also a Forbes contributor, an author, keynote speaker, and also the creator of the Electronic Propaganda Society podcast, an award-winning podcast that looks at the failures in the future of marketing. Previously, you've held Rosette Pardo, where you helped to position the business for a $100 million acquisition. And in 2013, Wiley engaged you to write the first guide to marketing automation entitled Marketing Automation for Dummies. I'm always curious, actually, about people who who write those books in terms of oh, whether you're too. sort of, you know, are you in like sort of two minds as to whether to do it or not? Cause you are ultimately attaching yourself to, uh, to a very, very particular, uh, type of title. But anyway, so you wrote that, which is great. Uh, you've also contributed to a ton of blogs, including convince and convert Mar- marketing professionals, which I love. And also you are a member of the Forbes communication council. So that's a lot. Um, I'm sure there's a ton more. You and I have had a, a sort of a, a, a brief conversation. I know there's a lot more to Matthew Sweezy. But uh, for our listeners' benefit, g- give, give us a little bit more context. I'm going to be talking a lot about context today. But give a bit more context. Help us understand the trajectory of your career. Like, you know, how did you basically yeah. get to where you are today? Yeah, and this is a, such a fascinating conversation because I think when you really peel back the layers, no one has a standard straight line trajectory, right? We, we've all got twists and turns and ups and downs. 
Mine really started back when I was about 25 and I uh, did my first startup, uh, which was a technology startup, right? We did a lead arbitrage system, um, which was way before aggregators and rating and review aggregation sites existed. Um, did that, and then we built a telephony back in so we could sell leads by the telephone uh, on a one-by-one -one basis, right? You know, they dial through, click one, we sell the lead in real time. Um, so that was fascinating. Did that and then lost a lot of money doing that, right? Like, so there's lots of things we learned with startups that are not all successful. Um, and so then I was out of a job, right? So I had shut down my startup and I needed to, to find somewhere else to land. In the startup community in Atlanta, it's very small at the time. Um, so a friend of mine uh, knew another guy and I said, hey man, this, this looks like an interesting company. You don't really know a lot what they do, but sounds cool. Can you, can you help me out get an interview? So I got an interview, um, then I was hired and that became my role at Pardot. So I was employee number 13 at Pardot. Um, so we then grew that company up. Uh, and so through that whole transition, for those that may not know the brand Pardot, uh, it was one of the very first marketing automation platforms, uh, which then became um, part of the Salesforce Marketing Cloud, which has been through acquisitions by Exact Target, right? We then sold for $100 million to Exact Target. Um, exact Target was then sold for $2.5 billion to Salesforce uh, shortly after that. And at the time, that was Salesforce's largest acquisition. So what is now Salesforce Marketing Cloud began um, as those, those pieces of technology. Um, so through all those different pieces, that's how I wound up there. Um, and I think that the fascinating thread through that whole thing is just my, it, I have a very different way of thinking about things, right? I'm, I'm, I love to dig in deeper, understand the answers as to why, um, really challenge people's thoughts, never really been a traditional thinker. Um, and that's really why Wiley asked me to write the marketing automation for Dummies book. And, and to your point, it's like, can you name an author who wrote a dummy's guide? And, and, and the answer is no, you can't. Um, and the, real, the reality is it's they're very tactical specific. Um, and it was a very difficult book to write um, because the problem is, is, is marketing automation and so many other technologies that we have these days are not just new ways of doing old things, they're radically new technologies and a new way of thinking. So trying to write a book that is designed for, I mean, it's, it's a primer, right? It's such a low level thought to help both people understand not only how to use this technology, but how to think differently uh, about an entire industry and, and the way that they work and then the way they create things w was very difficult. But, um, but that book's been, done very well. Um, you know, it sold well over 10,000 copies. Um, and, uh, and now I'm on my second book uh, with Harvard. So. But yeah, so it's gone well. Well, we're going to get into the, the new book for sure. And uh, I'm really looking forward to sort of digging into that kind of aspect of the conversation. But like a, a place that often that I like to start is to kind of get like a, a high level perspective on, on where you think we are as an industry to get today. Um, I think one of the things that, that, that have sort of drawn me to you um, and wanting to kind of like have this conversation is because of the fact you have just such a specific perspective an alternative viewpoint, a different way of kind of looking at what's happening today. But when you sort of step back and you think about the macro landscape at the moment, which is going to be a good lead into talking about the book, of course, how do you describe the state of the kind of modern media, modern marketing environment today? Yeah, and so there's there's one word that I use and that I've defined, and, and this is based on a, a very large amount of research, and the, the word is infinite. Right, so we all intrinsically know that there's a lot of noise in the marketplace, and there's there's more noise than ever. Um, and, and a couple of years ago, a, a guy named Roy Keeley, he's he, just a guy I met. Um, I have a brewery. One of the things I didn't tell you about is that I also own a brewery. Um, and he's a beer guy. We were sitting around talking about beer and just like you know riffing on like stuff that we like to think about. 
And he goes, hey, man, did you ever read any Harold Ennis or Marshall McLuhan? And I was like, no. You know, so that then just sent me down a, a really revolutionary path for me. And, and for those that may not know the term or, or the word or the, who the guy is, Marshall McLuhan, Marshall McLuhan and Harold Ennis are the grandfathers of what is called media theory. Uh, and media theory is a very simple theory, right? And so it, media is not something, when I say media, don't think of a channel, think of the entirety of media. Um, and media is so pervasive and, and it is such an immense factor. It's an actually environment. And as we think about environments, human beings are byproducts of their environment, right? And so just like the air that we breathe, right? It's the, the mixture of gases in the air was to change. Humans biologically would physically have to change and adapt. Right. And so then you go through the history of time. Right. Every time media changes. Right. Go to Gutenberg. Right. Gutenberg creates the printing press and he is single handedly cited with taking the world out of the dark ages and into the age of enlightenment. Why? Simply because more media could exist in the marketplace. Right. So when you start to think about these things. Right. So you ask, you know, what is the difference? And I said we live in the infinite media era. Well, we all intrinsically know that there's a lot of noise. But what I'm specifically saying is we have actually moved into a new media era. Right. And why this is so important and specifically to us as marketers is because marketing is a game, right? So, so think about game theory, right? Marketing is a game that we play given a certain set of rules and circumstances. And so if we go back and we think about the golden era of marketing, right, 1955 through the 1970s, and the Mad Men era, right? And we look specifically at what that period of time was, media was limited in three specific factors. And this is why I call it limited. It was limited in terms of creation, limited in terms of distribution, and limited in terms of access, right? So my father and grandfather, both print shop teachers, right? During the 1970s, the people creating those ads physically were drawing and printing and taking pictures. That's how that stuff was created. Now, the barriers for each one of those things is why they were limited. To create any form of media, you had to have capital to do so. It was not very easy or cheap meaning the only people that could create these things were brands and traditional media channels. Then the next was distribution. For you to distribute any form of media, it had to go through a pre-existing distribution channel, which meant you had to pay them, hence capital was another barrier. And then finally was the amount of access to media. Now you're like, all right, man, this is super nerdy. Why do I care about all this? We need to care very much about this because these are the byproducts or, or these are the, the rules of the games of human decision-making process. And as marketers, what we are doing is understanding the way humans make decisions and either and affecting that in some way, shape or form. Now, if we move to the, the current point in time, we now operate in the infinite media era. And, and actually the date that we transition into that, I get into the book and I've mathematically proven out the actual day. And what that means is in the limited media era, Brands were the largest creators of media, period. It was a media monopoly. Now, I want you to think about who the largest creator of media is. And I think we all intrinsically know the answer, and it's individuals. Now, I want to ask you a second question. Who is the second largest creator of media in our environment? And the answer is individuals' devices. Think about the notifications, right? And if we talk about motivation and how we motivate individuals, right, that's really kind of the heart of what marketing is. I want you to think very specifically about a notification and how that changes a person's physical actions instantaneously. You're going to have a notification pop up on your phone while you were listening to this podcast, right? If you want to lose weight, there's Noom, right? 
if you want to think about how powerful a Fitbit is to get somebody to take 10 more steps to help them reach their goal for the day, and then take one step back and realize that is a, that is a computer creating a specific media stream only for one individual, and the power of that media to motivate that individual is so immense that power has never existed before on the planet. Now, what that means is we have a completely different environment, hence the foundations of marketing that we used to believe were, that were created for a very specific point in time, right, that specific media environment, that era, that it no longer exists, and we have to change uh, and come up with new ideas and, and have a new foundation. That, that's kind of the basics of, of where we are um, today. So I, I want to talk about the book, Context Marketing Revolution, how you come to kind of, you know, the, the title and, and we'll obviously sort of unpack it a little bit to sort of talk about some of, some of the different sort of themes and topics that you touch on. But before I do, I, I want to just sort of spend a bit more time talking about the, the, the way in which you're kind of sort of framing things in, in terms of where we are today. And, and also, you know, with this sort of historical kind of perspective in mind. So Another way to obviously look at it is that we are facing an attention crisis, right? Everything that you're talking about and describing um, is feeding into this idea that um, consumers are now inundated, bombarded, overwhelmed by media, information, notifications, alerts, you know, whatever it might be. And the power and the potential of being able to reach um, individual consumers where they are um, um, with whether it's media messaging or, or simply just a notification to motivate them to take some kind of action is under a huge amount of threat because of the fact that consumers are pushing back on whether that's even something that they want. Can you, can you talk about that? as a lead-in yeah. to then also talking about kind of what context-based marketing is. Yeah, so, so, and I would argue against this notion of attention in, in a lot of different ways. So attention is tricky words, right? They're, and what I'm specifically talking about when we talk about attention, I'm talking about a foundation of the goal of marketing, right? So, and I would say we now live in a post-attention era. So let me kind of break this down for everybody, right? So going back to the limited era, if we look at kind of what was the foundational tactic of marketing, it was we were designing our programs, our messaging, our campaigns to steal your attention away from the task at hand to get you to do what we wanted to do. It was very much a manipulative process, right? And that is the basis of where we come up with this idea of marketing, right? We then create a lot of what we believe is marketing truisms or truths, right? Um, no such thing as bad press. Uh, sex sells is, is a great way of stealing attention, right person, right message, right time. These things are all truisms, but they're not necessarily true in the new era, right? They were only true in a given specific period in time. Let me give you some specific examples, right? Let's take sex sales, right? We all believe that, you know, if I can just steal somebody's attention and get them to look at me, I can then use that to either a build my brand, sell more stuff, motivate them to do something. The reality is it's totally false, right? So first off, Carl's Jr., right? It's uh, for some of you that may not know Carl's Jr., it's a fast food chain. Um, and they had a very salacious series of campaigns for a long time that were using purely sexual imagery to sell hamburgers, right? This is where Paris Hilton starts to become really famous, right? This is where she starts to get on the international stage because she's now in an advertisement. And she's spread across the hood of a car in a scantily clad bathing suit 
dripping hamburger stuff all over her, right? That is literally the advertisement that they run. And they run this campaign for years. I believe it was last year or the year before, they come out and they say, listen, we no longer want to be known for boobs. We want to be known for food. That is a direct quote from one of their executives. And here's why. Those ads, he says, don't work anymore, right? And the point is, is we're talking about, you know, it's, it's not just that there's so much media. We're forgetting that we are mediated men and there is a thing in the middle between you and the consumer. And that thing is called artificial intelligence. Too often we think about AI from a brand side. We say, how do I get AI to use this to empower my brand to do these things? What we need to realize is artificial intelligence, we are now marketing to the post AI consumer, right? Every digital interaction, every digital touch point that a consumer has in their hands, every email inbox, every social media feed, everything that is digital is empowered by AI. And that AI has a new master, right? That media is not operating for the brand, right? It operates for the individual. And what doesn't that individual want? Well, they don't want you stealing their attention, right? A good friend of mine, Doc Searles, always likes to remind me of this. He says, listen, Matt, and this was, I believe, two years ago we were having lunch, or maybe three at this point, and he said this to me. He says, think about this. He says, there are over 600 million devices on the planet with ad blocking on them. This is clearly the largest boycott to ever happen in human history. What are they boycotting? They're boycotting that very idea that attention is the foundation of marketing and that all we need to do is steal their attention, right? But that was the game that we played given the limited media environment. Now we flip to the, the other point in time, right? We flip to now and say, well, if that was the foundation now, what is the foundation today? Well, the foundation today is context, right? And so the definition that I want you to think about of context is very simple. If attention was how do we steal somebody's attention away from the task at hand, context is simple. How do we help them achieve their goal in the moment? Now think about how this works in lots of different ways, right? So if we are trying to reach somebody by any type of mass distribution channel and artificial intelligence is sitting in between those two things, artificial intelligence is going to filter out things they don't want, right? It's not gonna let those things through, but it will let them through things that will help them and they will engage with. Hence, that is then where context-based things really come into play. And context then gets into a framework of lots of different things, right? We can talk about, you know, human to human um, as the new apex of direct marketing, past one to one, all different types of things. But that's really kind of the basis of context-based marketing. We must shift the definition of marketing inside our organization from the department who creates messages to the owner and sustainer of all experiences across the customer journey. And those experiences must be contextual experiences, I mean they must be focused on helping that person achieve the goal at the moment. If we do that, we succeed. And that's what we find high performers do. So I, I, I agree with 90% of what you're talking about. And it's not that I even disagree with the sort of the remaining 10. It's just that I, I just want to spend a little bit of time kind of talking about the kind of the AI piece, because <clears throat> when you talk about AI in terms of the master that it ultimately serves and the fact that it's designed to or ultimately should be serving the individual consumer, I would just sort of challenge that because it ultimately just depends, right? It depends what we're really talking about in regards to the kind of the application of, of AI and how it's being used. I mean, if you look in the advertising world, 
as we know, AI is is largely just serving the the advertiser or the publisher in terms of like pushing down the cost of content, pushing down the cost of distribution, pushing down the cost of uh, of, of engagement. Um, and it's clearly n- not designed to necessarily serve the the individual. So, either can you give examples, or could you just spend a little bit more time talking about? why you feel relatively optimistic about the role of AI in marketing in regards to how it is ultimately is today or will ultimately in the future um, serve the consumer in a way that ultimately is going to help to deliver better, more contextual, more valuable experiences. Yeah. And and, and you're exactly right, right? This is a very deep a multifaceted conversation, right? So when we talk about artificial intelligence, we, we, you, you've also just brought up two different things, right? One is an organic news feed, and the other is the paid media that sits within that news feed, right? And as we all know, you know, paid advertisement via artificial intelligence delivery does a lot of powerful things, right? It also needs to think about the other side, right? The organic feed. So let's talk about the organic feed for a second. Purely talking about organic reach. If we look at the date and timestamp of things inside of any feed, you'll notice that they are not chronological, right? You don't see things by minute, by minute, by minute. You see things from years ago, minutes ago, months ago, days ago, all in the same line. The AI is filtering that based on the context of your moment of what it thinks you want to engage with at that time. And those brands, right, Facebook, and take any social platform, right, is then optimized based on the engagement. That is their underlying factor that they care about, increasing engagement. Now then to the flip side is the advertisements, the paid advertisements of putting those things in. And yes, AI can make sure that a person sees something better by targeting, by timing, um, by programmatic ad spend and buying. Those are all correct. Now, I'm not saying that advertising as a format is wrong. I'm saying the content that we think about what an ad is supposed to be has to change, right? The old definition of an ad was, I'm going to steal your attention away from the task at hand. We have to then shift that to saying, how do we then use this method or this medium to help them accomplish a goal? And where does that goal fit on that journey? And how do we use it to move them to the next step? Right? This concept that all I need to do is create an amazing ad and that will do and solve everything for my brand. Let me give you a really key example. Right? Going back to 2016, the most famous advertisement of this year was the Ship My Pants commercial from Kmart. When I say the most famous, it won the Grand Prix. I don't know if it won the Grand Prix, but it won, but I think all the awards that it could at cons, right? The advertising Grammy, essentially awards, right? Now, if you're not familiar with this campaign, go look at it. It was one of the most brilliant creatives, I mean, hands down, it wins, it wins all the creative awards for the year. But now let's break this down, right? I'm in Chicago and I see this advertisement, right? So I was like, great. I was like, I'm not from Chicago. If, if my accent comes through, I'm from the South. I live in Charleston. So as any normal human, I was like, well, I don't know how to get there. How do I find out? Well, I Google it, right? Simple thought. So I Google it. Well, what does Google bring back to me? Well, it brings back contextual information. It says, all right, here are the ratings and reviews, as well as directions to all the local stores. The average rating and review of the three closest stores was 2.9. Humans do not go to anything below a three star, right? So I was like, all right, I'm not going to go to the store. So I said, I'll go to the website. So I go to the website. The website is broken. There's a floating ad block on top of all the content. And I said, well, okay, this has got to be my fault. It must be a cookie error or some other type of issue. Clear my cookies, restart my browser, go back. It's the website is actually broken. Now let's break this down. How many tens of millions of dollars do they spend on that advertisement to then drive me to two horrible experiences, right? 
that brand has lost 95% of their value since that point in time. Like, great messaging, no matter how creative it is, doesn't work anymore. We interrupt this week's episode of Leads to Scale to share an update in regards to our forthcoming conference in London. The 10th annual edition of Social Media Week London, Europe's premier conference for media and marketing professionals, is taking place at the QE2 Conference Center in Westminster between October 31st and November 1st. This year's event will continue the 2019 global theme stories with great influence comes great responsibility, a conversation that will explore how social media has become the most influential story platform in the world that has the power to both unite and divide us. Check out our first wave of speakers and secure your pass by visiting socialmediaweek.org forward slash London. And don't forget to use the code leads number two scale at the checkout to save an additional 10% off your pass. All right, let's get back to the show. One of the reasons, and, and, and thank you for that, because I think that just like it really does help to, to provide the additional context. W one of the reasons why I was very excited to meet you, have a conversation, and and, and now record that conversation. Um, is is because your new book, the book that isn't out yet but is soon to be released, is very much like aligned with our entire 2020 theme. Um, so Social Media Week has a theme every year. Uh, it's a global theme. We have 28 plus conferences that take place in about 20 different countries around the world. And all of our local sort of organizers adhere to this kind of content framework. And next year, our theme is Human X. The future of marketing will be human first and experience driven. And ultimately what that means is we have to get back to kind of the fundamentals, right? Much of what you're kind of talking about is this idea of how do we create value? How do we meet customers where they are? How do we communicate with them um, contextually? Um, and then the experience kind of aspect of the theme is, is, is really sort of speaking to this idea that um, we have to move out of this kind of channel-based thinking. Um, we have to embrace the idea that there are uh, that it's a very fragmented and fractured and messy kind of sort of consumer landscape, but there's incredible opportunities to um, to engage consumers at different points on the customer journey, regardless of whether it's on social or email or on the internet or through your website or even in the physical world. And all of these different spaces in which we can kind of engage people are all starting to kind of um, uh, come together. And so in addition to the theme having a framework and, and there is a specific, I suppose, point of view behind it is also designed to be sort of open for interpretation. So when you think about your book and the work that you're doing in this space, um, I'm just interested to kind of hear your thoughts in terms of what does human first and experience driven mean to you? Uh, it means everything. Um, so let me take one step back and kind of tell people a little bit about what my actual job and role at Salesforce is. So my job is principal of marketing insights. So I really focus on what does the future of marketing look like? So I help work with our research teams um, to investigate things. I then help deliver that research. 
And over the past four years, we've been really trying to identify the key differences between high-performing marketing organizations and everyone else, right? What makes a high-performing marketing organization, what makes it, right? So, so we can then all do those things. And you know the number one key difference, and by the way, high-performing marketing organizations are 10 times more likely to be significantly beating their direct competition, 10 times more likely, right? And here's the number one key trait of all high performers. They have full executive buy-in to a new idea of marketing. That idea of marketing is marketing is no longer the creator of messages. They are the owner and sustainers of all experiences across the customer journey. That's it. Without full executive support, the word experience and the idea of experience usually turns into something like this. Oh, we're going to take this ad and we're going to make it immersive. That's an experience, right? That is not an experience of what we're talking about. Right. We, we are talking about the definition of it expanded across the entire journey. And if you ever go back and, and think about, like, I'm a big fan of Joe Pine. He wrote a book called The Experience Economy, right? Harvard Business published uh, 99 first, republished in 2015. It is the theoretical foundation that the highest economic value a firm can produce is no longer a product or a service. It is an experience and specifically an experience that helps somebody transform. Now, I want to think about this. Think about this, right? IKEA buys TaskRabbit last year or a year before. I can't and years fly by and I don't remember when it was. They buy TaskRabbit. Now, think about how this transforms an individual in that experience. So no longer are you the person buying the thing and physically doing it. You are no longer the worker. You can buy the thing, have it delivered, and have it assembled, elevating the experience from you, the worker, to you, the manager, right? So Think about how these things break down and how they work. And, and to the point of human, it is, I've, hands down, I have a whole chapter about this, right? The old apex that we used to think of direct marketing was one-to-one, right? One brand message to one individual at one time. But that is no longer the apex, human-to-human. Human. And let's think about why this is, right? Go back to the environmental aspects. So many people look at social media and say a couple of basic things. They say, you know, everyone's on social media because they want to be a publisher. And, and we assume the highest value of social media is free publication and distribution. It's not. That's the lowest value. The highest value is direct personal connection, right? Humans connecting to other humans, right? And so the highest apex of direct marketing now is human to human, which is why we see such a big emphasis on advocacy marketing, influencer marketing, right? We talk about social selling. And if you break the math down, right, if you look at a brand with a million social followers and you say, all right, let's just, let's just do the math on organic social reach. A brand with a million followers at the current state of affairs has 1% social reach. It only takes 135 people engaging on social media to have the exact same power as a single brand with a million followers. Now, most B2B brands have 50,000 uh, in their audience, which would require five people. Now, I want to give you an example of backcountry.com, right? I, I'm a big, massive outdoor adventure fan, right? I go snowboard trips. I surf every day. I my own bike all the time. You know, the last time we talked, you were on a bike. I was recovering from a bike accident. Uh, my arm was in a sling. And so I, so I buy a pair of socks and some gloves. Super low-level purchase, right? Maybe 100, 120 bucks. Two days later, my phone rings, and this guy has said, hey, I'm, I'm Wesley from Backcountry. And I'm like, it, my instant response was, is everything okay with my order? And he goes, no, 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 everything's fine with your order. I'm a gearhead. And I was like, yeah, I don't know what that means, so please explain. So then he tells me, he goes, listen, he goes, 
I'm an expert snowboarder because I uh, just want to know where you're going, see if I can tell you the best trails, see if I can give any tips about where you're heading, if you have any questions I may be able to hands out with. And I was like, uh, no, but I really want to know about what this gearhead program is. So I dive into this program, right? This is an online retailer. They now have 150 gearheads, and this is all human-to-human -human interaction, right? These gearheads reach out. They take their customers climbing. They build personal relationships with them. They see purchase intent increase 105% by people that interact with gearheads, right? They expect $100 million in the future of sale, or in the, the near-term future, to be directly impacted by this gearhead program, right? So it's total human-to-human -human is exactly where it has to go. And think about it. The media environment allows for it. We have direct personal access to people in so many different ways. We need to be empowering our employees to reach out. And now we can use technology to know who should reach out to whom at the right time, what conversations they should be having. And those can become very powerful personal and human experiences. So I'm, I'm, I'm totally all in on humans and experiences, if, if that's not clear. No, it's, <laughs> it definitely is. Um... And it's interesting. It reminds me of Seth Godin's uh, his most recent book, The Future. Uh, no, this is marketing. He talks about the the smallest viable audience uh, and how we need to kind of get back to that idea because we've just spent a decade thinking about scale and reach and chasing the wrong kinds of metrics. And and I think the, that that particular the gearhead example is just like the perfect um embodiment of this idea that if you can think about your smallest viable audience um and if you can figure out a way of inviting them on your journey and elevating their status and empowering them to be an ambassador for your brand it it, it can deliver exponential results and 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 I think the other point that you made, which I think is just so important to sort of reinforce, which is this idea that we have the tools, <laughs> the technology exists. We have just this extraordinary level of, of, of sophistication in terms of how we can execute on these programs. We've just been using the tool incorrectly. Um, and I think that kind of represents, you know, we talk about the kind of the attention crisis in terms of kind of like um, it being like a trillion dollar crisis. And we just... You know, we're obviously, you know, <laughs> fairly deliberately kind of attaching a very big number to something. But just to kind of help to, f to frame why it's important that we actually take stock of where we are now and think about the future in different terms, because what's more important than a crisis is, is, is the opportunity that comes out of said crisis. And, and when we think about the next 10 years of marketing, uh, it's a pretty exciting time to, to, to be... Um, uh, beginning essentially what is a, a new journey. Oh, no, we're, we're in the second golden era of marketing. Let's be very clear, right? The first golden era was 1955, Madman era. We are in the second golden era. The things that we are doing for now over the next 10 years will be the, will we be looking back on and saying, man, like that was the most innovative, crazy time. It's been so fast in the past 10 years. I mean, there's a lot of problems that have existed, right? If, if you are a brand that's existed for 10 years or more, right, we all have something that is a massive problem, right? 1995, we had to get websites. 96, we had to do SEO. 97, we had to buy an email tool. 98, we, the point is we had to continually buy new technology before the old technology was even fully valued, right? We didn't even see, we didn't even get all the value out of that last stuff before we had to go back and ask for new technology and new budget to buy new stuff, right? So it's just such a massive point in change. 
And now the, like we we're talking about the, the media environment, the change, it's completely changing the foundations of what marketing is, right? Marketing is no longer just a single department. Let me give you a really solid example about this concept of experience um, and this whole concept of context versus attention, right? Let's take Mercedes-Benz and Tesla, hold them side by side, the Model 3 and the C-Class, right? 2015 is when the Model 3 first comes out, right? The pre-sales start. In 2015, Mercedes-Benz sells 86,000 C-Class cars, right? It's the direct comparable unit. Right, this is the, the gasoline, not electric version, right? They sell 86,000 units. Average advertising cost per unit of that car is $926, right? Model 3 comes out. They sell 300,000 cars. Average advertising cost per unit is six, right? One 150th. At the time, Mercedes-Benz was known as the world's greatest luxury car manufacturer. 2019, Tesla is now known as the world's greatest luxury car manufacturer. Now, if you think about this, it's a business model shift, right? This is not just we're taking, when, when I said new executive buy-in to a new idea of marketing, I don't mean new marketing ideas, right? We're talking about a fundamental shift in what marketing becomes, right? So let's break this down from a business model standpoint, organizational change. Mercedes-Benz functions this way. They build a car. Marketing's function is to tell the world about the car that they built, and then they sell that car. Now look at Tesla. Tesla begins by working with the market. They then sell that car. They then build that car. They then continue to market. The difference in business models is Mercedes is build, market, sell. Tesla is market, sell, build, market. Everything on Kickstarter. The difference that we have to, the, the entire book that I've written and the entire philosophy that I believe in can be summed up in three words. With, not, on. We must shift our idea of marketing to see how we can work with our marketplace, not how do we work on our marketplace, right? And that's exactly what these companies are doing. And that is the change that is so transformational in these outcomes. How much do you believe brands need to kind of um, invest in uncovering and better understanding their own sense of purpose? Like when I go back to something that you said earlier about like the highest performing marketing organizations, I was sort of thinking about like, well, wonder, I wonder what some of the other parameters are that like differentiate between, you know, a 10x high performer and basically the rest of the market. And, and you know, you've done the research, you've written the book, so I'm, I'm hoping you, you have some sort of specifics you can kind of cite here. But like how important is purpose? How important is... Um, being able to, um, you know, communicate, understand what it is and communicate it through not just marketing, but, but, but actually through the products and services you provide. Yeah, it's extremely important, right? So in the book, I break down context and there's a whole contextual framework. We're not going to get into this in this call. It's super nerdy and deep. We don't need to talk about it. But there are elements of it. And one of those elements is purpose. Right. And so I helped with the economist group. Right. We all know the publication, the economist. Right. So I worked with them to actually do this research on, you know, what does purpose do for brands? And what we find is purpose driven brands are more profitable. Right. When, when we do the research at Salesforce, we found that purpose driven brands are 2.2 times more likely to be significantly beating their direct competition. Now, it's become such a buzzword, you have all kinds of people doing these different things, right? The, the Pepsi example is a great example of what this is not, right? And then on the other extreme, you know, we all know and love Patagonia. 
But now let's be clear, right? And go back to that with, not on, right? So let's break down purpose into three as a continuum. At the lowest end is CSR, right? We, we all know CSR, right? You're building habitat for humanity houses. You know, you're, you're doing, you're, you're saying good things. You're doing good things. You're donating money. But think about intrinsically what that is. You were still forcing a message onto the marketplace, right? You were still saying, hey, marketplace, we are good. This is the message that we are good. Your outcome is still a message and you're still forcing it onto the marketplace. Now, look at the far right end. The far right end is co-action, right? And then that is with, we are doing things with our marketplace, right? Go back to look at what Tesla does. People don't think about Tesla as a purpose-driven brand, but they very much are. What is their purpose? To get the world off of fossil fuels. That has been the core message of Elon from day one. And look at how he's done it. He's worked with his market and he's told them exactly from day one, look, we're gonna build this roadster, but the point is, I just don't want to build a fast car. I'm building this fast car so we can create the technology, the infrastructure to then build a car that has a little bit more mass appeal. And then we're going to do that and leverage that to go to the next step. And then finally to the Model 3. That has been the purpose-driven initiative from day one, right? And go back to it, right? Tesla sells 300,000 cars. The car didn't even exist. If I was to ever give you a sci-fi book and I was to tell you a story that there's a brand that comes out that's going to create something that sells 300,000 things that don't even exist, and that's, what, four and a half times more than the largest, best in the class, right, ever does in that era, it, you're like, that never could happen, right? And it did. And they never created an ad to sell that car. It was all about working with the market focused on the central purpose of creating and getting the world off of fossil fuels. Let's talk about privacy and trust. Uh, mm, you, love it. If you, if you don't mind segueing a little bit from fossil fuels to privacy, I think we can, we can, we can build a bridge there. Um, so actually another one of our tenants of our 2020 theme is, is what we call privacy matters. And um, it, it looks at it from a whole bunch of different perspectives, but trying to, as much as possible, look at privacy and what's happening in the privacy space through the lens of marketing. And so we're obviously seeing consumer sort of shifts, behavioral kind of changes as, as people kind of begin to understand what open uh, means in the context of privacy and what closed and even encrypted means in the context of, of privacy although i think you can probably make an argument that like the average consumer still doesn't really know what the hell's going on but nevertheless you know we are seeing a shift and and, and in particular we're see, seeing people moving from open spaces to private spaces in regards to where they want to communicate we're starting to see changes in behavior in terms of what people are communicating what they're sharing um you know the ephemeral component of instagram stories exists for a very specific reason because it gives people an opportunity to be sort of impulsive and spontaneous and creative in the moment but not necessarily have to worry about the kind of consequences of that content necessarily being around forever so going back to the book and thinking about context marketing what are your thoughts on where we are today in terms of privacy and, and what are some of the things that we need to be thinking about as marketers when we sort of wrestle what is essentially a, a very um, difficult topic in, in terms of how we think about engaging consumers where they are. Yeah, so let's go back to 99 and let's go back to Seth Godin's permission marketing, right? 
this is the first time that we as marketers actually have to conceive the idea that the individual has to give us something for us to market back to them, right? Now let's, let's iterate on that idea and go forward. Most of us have all heard of permission. We all use it, right? Every marketer knows I need permission to get access. But the way that we think about it is that permission gives us access to their inbox. We need to think about the permission that gives us access to the data because every one of those experiences that we're talking about has to be created on the fly for the individual in real time. And if we don't have that personal data, we can't meet that level, right? So it is critical that we get that data, but it's also critical that we build trust to get that data. So we've done the research on this, right? So there's essentially three levels of how we can build trust by getting the data. When the, the most basic level is when we are getting this data and asking for this permission, we must explain how we are going to use this data, right? You must tell them this is what it's gonna be used for. And by the way, people are happy to give you data as long as you can use it to make a better experience, right? Now, the second thing is you've explained how you're gonna use it. When you use it, make sure that you are using it to create greater value for them and are transparent in what data you are using to do that. And then the highest level of trust is giving them ownership, meaning they can actually go in, see what data you have on them, and manage that data. That's the highest level of trust that you can build between an individual and their data. And it is so critical. Um, I just gave a talk um, up here at a conference. I just gave a talk yesterday, and we were talking about these things. And, and I mean, this is, you, we have to be thinking about this, right? GDPR, right, mandates a lot of these things. Now, a lot of companies are in, in America. and now we've got you know laws coming out from California. We've got laws coming out from New Hampshire. The United States is only one giant f up away from massive regulation on data privacy policy. Right, that's it. Right. So I mean, we have to be thinking about things. And the most critical and important thing I want us to think about is if you get permission data, it's regulation proof. Right. It's not third party. It's first party. You're able to get that direct access and have that from the individual regulations are not going to change the ability to have that and use that they're going to change how you store it the access you give to people and the transparency you provide when you use it so we're, we're very very close to running out of time this conversation is like felt very fast-paced which is something i obviously love we've covered a lot of ground um, but I know there's just so much more to unpack, particularly, obviously, in regards to your forthcoming book, Context Marketing Revolution. Is there anything that we've not covered, anything that you would love to share with this audience that's featured in the book that will get people excited about the book and obviously, most importantly, motivate them to actually purchase it? Sure. I mean, if you've ever said, why in the hell is this not working? why is my marketing not working, right? That, that's the, the, the reason for the book, right? It, it's, it's a deep investigation as to what do we believe this word to be? Why do we believe these things to be the case? And let's, let's dive deep into you know, like a lot of science as to why those things no longer work, right? And what do we need to be doing about them and where do we need to be moving in the future? And it, it's, it's, it's revolutionary. That's why I called it revolution. I, I don't want to use that word, it's overplayed. Um, you know, everyone's like, don't use that word, but we really need to understand, right? We are literally having to move away from the old definition and not just in the practice and the organizational structure and the discipline, 
um, how we use it. I mean, I go as far as to saying that, you know, customer journey maps will sit right next to balance sheets of the future because they will give a snapshot of full demand across the entire business and they're predictive and proactive and direct the business forward just as much as the balance sheet does that for the financials of money coming in and money going out, right? Like we need to start thinking about these things in these ways. And the brands that do, those are the high performers and they are radically beating their competition. I mean, it's, it's just the data shows it, right? It's there. So, I mean, I'm very bullish on these things. I totally agree with your, your ideas of humanity and experience. Um, I don't think you're gonna find many people that disagree with those ideas anymore. I think the question is gonna become, how do we do those things? And I dive a lot of those, uh, get into the how specifically in this book as well. Well, that is probably actually a great way to to wrap up. I speak to a ton of people on this podcast who have written books and oftentimes like seminal pieces of work that have great ideas that, you know, when you sort of like, when you come across them and you read them and you dig into them, you think, oh my God, like everybody really needs to understand this. This needs to be a central part of the conversation that this industry needs to be having all of the time. And oftentimes it's for me, listen, I'm an event organizer. You know, we have like a ton of conferences. We bring thousands of people of, of digital marketers together every single year. You know, we see it as our obligation to be facilitating these conversations. So, you know, part of the answer to this next question is that like, you know, we need to make sure that we put this front and center, of course. And very excited that uh, you will actually be speaking at Social Media Week in, in New York in, in May 2020. But what else do we need to be doing as an industry, you know, in terms of taking these ideas forward, in terms of making these ideas more mainstream? And, and you know, the obvious thing is just like everyone needs to buy the book. I get it. But also in unpacking it and socializing it and making it part of the conversation, what, what are some of the things that like you're hoping for from this particular piece of work in terms of how it's going to mobilize people as part of this this next revolution? Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping we do two things, right? Well, I'll, I'll say three things. One, I'm hoping we ask the question, why do I do this in the first place? Like, why do I believe this to be a truth? And, and we challenge those ideas, right? Number two is I believe that we radically need to get back to actually talking to individuals, right? I mean, let's just go back to, I mean, we, we're running short in time, so I'll make this quick, right? Public relations starts in 1917, Edward Bernays. Edward Bernays' uncle is Sigmund Freud. The antithesis of public relations is diving deep and having your, your target market psychoanalyze, right? Psychoanalyze to then understand how to reach their inner self. We've, we've moved so far from that and are operating on such bias of what we think people want, how we think they want them to act. We must get back to realizing that we must serve them, right? Loyalty is not how loyal are they to us. It's how loyal are we to them? And that's not my quote. I, I took that from Mark Schaefer, right? And, and then finally, it's we then need to then and stop looking at silly metrics and go back to asking them, all right, cool, you downloaded that, you engaged with that, you had that experience, how can I make that better for the next person? Like, let, let's get back to the basics of saying, let's focus on them, and it's about them, not us. I mean, it's really, I just hope we get to a better, a better place in humanity. That's really where I hope it goes. And I love the three words, the with, not on, and, and it, it's such a, an important and clever way of, of helping people remember something at a fundamental level, but also something that's actually memorable and shareable um, that, that obviously, you know, underpins everything that you're talking about. Uh, Matthew, thank you so much. You've shared so much with our audience. I'm excited for the book. I'm excited for you to speak at Social Media Week in May 2020. Uh, really appreciate you taking the time. So thanks. 
was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Leads to Scale, a podcast from Social Media Week. Leads to Scale is edited and produced by Al Manorino. For the latest news and insights, or to learn more information about how to get involved with future Social Media Week events, please visit socialmediaweek.org.